Mike McCabe is kind of an outsider. He's the only candidate in the Democratic primary for governor who has refused to pledge to support the party's eventual nominee, should it not be him. He's set strict contribution limits for his campaign donors, and the only pants he will wear are blue jeans. I'm Jesse O'Poyan, and this is Wedge Issues, a podcast about the 2018 elections in Wisconsin. We are going to skip the news roundup this week because I am on vacation, and we'll jump right into my conversation with Mike McCabe about what he calls a people-powered campaign for governor. I'm running for governor because we've reached a point where we have a government that is working spectacularly well for those at the very top, a wealthy and well-connected few. And and then as I travel the state, what I find is so many people who feel forgotten or written off. They feel like they don't have a voice. They feel like government is not acting on their behalf. They feel really left out. And they're struggling, both economically and otherwise. They're struggling to keep their heads above water. And they just don't feel the government works for them. And they've got some really strong reasons to believe that. And, and of course, my life's work has been about trying to expose those forces that that lead our government to just uh, work for a privileged few instead of all of us. And, and uh, we have to shake up and transform that system if we're going to get regular people a voice and get them authentic representation. I've heard you talk about forgotten people, forgotten places a lot on the campaign trail. What does that mean to you, and, and how do you propose elevating them and, and getting them back into the conversation? I'm talking about people who sometimes are in the inner city, and sometimes they're way out in the country, like where I'm from. But what they all have in common is I, I think they they really wonder if anybody at the Capitol even knows they're out there. They They don't feel that they have a voice. They don't feel like their concerns or their challenges are being talked about or or addressed at the Capitol, they they feel written off. And, and that makes them angry, but it also just leaves them despairing because they, they wonder if there's a way out of that trap. And so I, I, I think that creates a really volatile set of political conditions. And, and I, I think what we've seen happen in 2016, so far in 2018, is an indication that people are really hungry for a very different kind of leadership and, and a new politics. And I just think that uh, we've, we've got a a dangerous moment on our hands, both for our state and our country. And, and I, I think that means that people who haven't necessarily been in, interested in, in the business of governing, ha- we all have to take matters into our own hands and, and get this state to a better place. It feels like um, it's a really negative set of circumstances that you're describing, but it sounds like there's some hope for some positivity in there to come through. Do you think that that, that needs to come from someone who hasn't served an elected office before or, or hasn't been part of the, the system that you're talking about? Not necessarily, but but it does have to come from someone who is, is dedicated to throwing the conventional political playbook out the window and doing things very differently. If If what it all comes down to in the end is that candidates continue to spend four or five hours a day every day asking rich people for money and then they run a bunch of trashy ads and they get elected and then they go about doing the bidding of of those who supplied them all the money. Uh, That gets us nowhere good and it only deepens the sense of frustration that so many people have. So I've been around the state capitol for a long time. I've been in one capacity or another, dealing with state and local government for 35 years. So I I know the inner workings of government really well. But what I haven't done is pursued a path that was about getting elected to office. And 
And if that's the only kind of experience that people are looking for, then I'm not your candidate. I have a lot of experience and that's given me a real good understanding of the inner workings of government. But, but it has been as an independent watchdog. It has been a, as someone who's, who's worked to try to get the political establishment to change its ways and get regular people in the driver's seat of our government. And I, I think there's just a crying need for, for that. How do you see yourself differently from the other options? Well, it's a very large field of candidates, obviously, and they're all very accomplished people. What I saw missing and, and what ended up drawing me into the race was that I didn't see anyone who was committed to really doing politics differently. I, you know, I, I'm running a campaign where I don't take any single donation over $200 and nobody else is willing to do that. And what that creates as a challenge for me is, is that I, I really have to crowdfund this campaign. I have to get a lot of people willing to give small amounts of money, but much more importantly, we have to rely on grassroots organization. We have to rely on people power. But to me, that's the central challenge of our time. And if we continue to practice politics in a way that plays to money power, that plays right into the hands of our current governor. We have to figure out a way to overcome, to challenge and overcome that money power with people power. And that that's what really brought me into this race. And of course, that's what my life's work has been about. And that's what sets me apart from the rest of the field. I, I've taken positions over the course of this campaign. In some cases, I was the first to take certain positions, but a lot of the rest of the field would join me after after I took those positions. But the one place they leave me alone is this whole question of, of money and politics. And, and I think that's what makes me unique in the race. And of course, where I'm from is, is a factor here as well. I, I come from a farming background. And Grew up in, in Clark County, uh, which now votes overwhelmingly Republican, more Republican than Waukesha County, but used to be represented by Democrats. And, and we have to be able to compete in places like that. And, and I think that's something that sets me apart as well. And you, you launched your campaign on the farm where I you did. grew up. And, uh, you know, you've, you've spent time over the years in the Capitol, outside the Capitol, in the, in the general vicinity of the Capitol, working in different capacities. Describe for me your journey from the farm to running for governor now. Growing up on the farm is what brings me to this place uh, because it's what gave me my values. And one of the stories I tell a lot is a story of a neighbor who lost his father to suicide. His, his dad hung himself in the shed from a rafter when the bank was foreclosing and taking the farm away from that family. Well, weeks after losing his dad and, and we all went to that funeral and buried that man and, uh, and just months before that family was was taken off their land. Uh, we were trying to harvest crops, and the rains wouldn't stop, and we were burying tractors up to their axles in mud. And and this this young guy comes down the road and pulls into our field and hooks a chain to our tractor and pulls us through the field so we could harvest corn. And and we returned the favor in the days to come and uh, helped them harvest their corn, which did they didn't get to benefit from because the bank took that too. Uh, but that taught me everything I needed to know about the common good. I mean, that taught me about neighbors looking out for each other, the, the idea that we're all in this together and you don't leave anybody behind. And and at a moment of enormous trauma, he was still looking out for somebody. He was still helping a neighbor. And that was that was a man who didn't have a high school diploma, never graduated from high school, but was one of the most powerful teachers I ever had in my life. Well, that shaped my politics. That, that gave me the values that I've got. I, I, I became the person I am on the farm. And it, it gave me a sense of the importance of public service, of being there for, for others, and I think ultimately has me here at this point of running for governor. But that upbringing is everything to me. 
Can you walk me through a little bit your professional career? You've done the watchdog thing. You've started your own advocacy group. Um, before that, you, you worked in the Capitol a little bit for as a mm-hmm. staffer. What did you learn along the way? And in terms of your political identifications, what have you seen change in the Capitol? Well, one of the, one of the interesting things about me is that I, I once worked a long time ago in the very early 80s for three Republican legislators in the state assembly. Yeah. But that was a time when there were Nelson Rockefeller liberals in the Republican Party. And, sure. And Teddy Roosevelt or Bob LaFayette file at Republicans. One of my favorite legislators at the time was a guy named Tiny Krieger, who, who represented Merrill in, in Marathon County. And uh, he was the last remaining person in the Wisconsin political scene with, with ties to, the, to Bob LaFollette's progressive party. And he was serving as a Republican in the state legislature, but he was a man with an enormous heart, a tremendous compassion, and he was a true progressive. And then you had Main Street Republicans, sort of moderate Republicans. You had pro-choice Republicans on abortion and pro-life Democrats. So the political culture was so radically different then. And, and of course, that was also a time when Democrats and Republicans could actually talk to each other and and work things out with each other. Mm -hmm. So I go back around uh, my time around the Capitol. I go back to a time when our political culture was vastly different than it is today. And so I actually... Unlike so many of the candidates running these days, they, they've only ever known the division and polarization and the political dysfunction that we have today. And they're products of that. Uh, I, I go back long enough where I can actually remember when Wisconsin was very different that way. And, and you know, so I, I do have experience around the Capitol, but most of my years, decades of it, has been spent in a watchdog role uh, trying to shine light. On first, it was the way... Uh, our tax money is used by our government. Later, it was the transactions between wealthy donors and elected officials and how that corrupts our government. And and it really was all about trying to get our government to be more responsive to the people. It was, it was to try to revive that spirit of democracy. You, uh, in terms of political partisan identification, talk a lot about the importance of really not adhering to uh, a party loyalty necessarily. You are the one candidate who said, I'm not going to necessarily... Uh, pledge to support if it's if it's not you, the nominee of the Democratic Party, just because it's the nominee of the Democratic Party. Why is that? We need a new governor, and and someone with my values can't very well support Scott Walker. Sure. And what I can say is I'm not going to vote for Scott Walker. <laughs> but I I think party loyalty pledges are a mistake, and I think all the other candidates in the race who've been willing to take that party loyalty pledge are making a mistake because it it sends a a very, very negative and damaging message to voters. What it says is that these candidates will put party above everything. They'll put party ahead of country. They'll put party ahead of the people. Party trumps everything. And if you have the right letter behind your name, that's who you're going to back, regardless of anything else. And to get a new governor, we have to win over some people who have not voted for the Democratic nominee now three different times for for governor. Scott Walker has been elected three times. And the way to do that is not to say that party is is above everything. So I just think party loyalty pledges are a mistake. And and I think my feeling is that there's going to be a, a primary election on August 14th. Let the people decide. Let them have their choices and let them decide. And then after August 14th, that's the time for people to to decide which candidate they're going to get behind for the general election. You mentioned the other area that you have staked out on your own being campaign contributions. How did you set the thresholds? $200 uh, at a time, no more than $1,000 overall from one person over the campaign. How did you set those thresholds? Um, the the $200 figure has has meaning to me because I've spent all those decades tracking money in politics. And one of the things I know is that 
one half of one percent of the American population gives two thirds of all the political money in this country. And the threshold that they are above is $200. Those who give more than $200, and most of them give vastly more than $200, but those who give over $200 give two-thirds of all the political money in this country. And they represent one-half of 1% 1 of the American population. So this tiny segment of our society bankrolls the, the campaigns, and then they end up having outsized influence over the decisions government makes. What I've learned is that those people who do most of the giving, what they want our government to do is radically different than what the rest of us want our government to do. And yet they get our government to do that on every issue we care about. And that's where people lose out and, and a privileged few at the top win. And so, you know, that $200 threshold is very meaningful. If you follow the money and if you look at how money flows in American politics, uh, once you go above $200, you start to see the influence of a few really magnified. So I decided no single donation over $200. We're, we're allowing supporters to give more than once, but not more than a total of 1000 Now, the legal limit is $20,000 from an individual and $86,000 from the political action committee of a special interest group. But I consider those to be legal bribes because all the work I've done all these years have shown me that there are strings attached to those checks. They expect favors. They get favors on, on a regular basis. That's what has to stop. And so I, I, I feel it's really important to practice what I've preached all these years and lead by example first. I would assume you would, you would look at a $201 check and think yeah, that's probably not like a terrible thing compared to your $200 check. But where I guess if you're looking at your opponents and thinking the spectrum between $200 and $20,000, where do you start to feel uncomfortable and think this person, this candidate is potentially on the hook and well, you've being got, manipulated? You've got, a, you've got a set of threshold somewhere. And, and obviously the law used to be a $10,000 donation was the legal limit. And then those who lord over us at the Capitol these days, they decided to double the limit for donations and they upped it to $20,000 from an individual. And, you know, and I think if they had their way, they'd take limits off altogether. But the bottom line is when you start seeing four and five figure checks, those donations get remembered. There's no question about that. And they come from a tiny segment of society. And that segment of society wants influence and, and they want favors. And they get it. That's the cancer that's growing in the body of our democracy that we have to diagnose and then cure. We should mention, since people can't see you, you are wearing blue jeans. I've never <laughs> not seen you wearing blue jeans. Um, your campaign's got the governor blue jeans theme. Blue Jean Nation was the advocacy group that you started after you left the democracy campaign. Where did that take root for you? And why is that theme carrying out through your campaign? Well, it took root in childhood. I, I grew up on a dairy farm. And I grew up wearing blue jeans. And, you know, so that's, that's how I've dressed my whole life. But I've actually never owned a matching suit that where the, really? where the jacket and the pants are made of the same material. I wasn't even married in a matching suit. <laughs> and my wife wasn't married in a wedding gown. We were dressed pretty informally for our wedding. And I've never worn a tux in my life. I've never owned a matching suit uh, in my life. And I, I just felt like it would be phony to put that costume on now and pretend to be, I'm, pretend to be fancier than I actually am. And then the other thing, I, I, I guess to me, is I am challenging some thinking here. Uh, why is it assumed that it's wrong for an elected representative of the people to dress the way regular people dress? Why is that considered wrong? That kind of thinking that somehow elected officials have to dress better than regular people dress on a daily basis, that kind of thinking is really 
that's the thinking of aristocracy, not the thinking of the ideal of democracy. So I, I am challenging that thinking here too. It's not just dressing the way I've always dressed, that's part of it, but it's also, it's also saying, look, you know, elected officials are supposed to be servants, not masters. They're not supposed to be lording over us. They're not supposed to be above us. They're supposed to be under us, serving us. And so to me, there's also that symbolic impact of wearing blue jeans. It's, it's to send a message that challenges that thinking that, that elected officials are supposed to dress somehow fancier than regular people dressed. Elected representatives, I just don't think there's anything wrong with dressing the way regular people dress if you're an elected representative of the people. I mean, if you, if you are elected, I mean, sometimes regular people have to dress up for things like fancy dinners, ceremonies, funerals, what have you. I didn't, you never, wear, no? I didn't wear a suit to my own wedding, for crying out loud, <laughs> okay. you know? And, and so, so do you envision a scenario in which you would ever need to wear khakis or, or a sport <laughs> coat or something? <laughs> well, I've, I've said all along that you know, people have asked me, are you going to campaign the whole way in blue jeans? And I said, yes, and I'll be inaugurated in blue jeans, and I will govern in blue jeans. Uh, you know, and th- there is nothing wrong with an elected representative <laughs> of, the pe- of the people dressing the way regular people dress. And, and so I, I do challenge that thinking because I do think it's the thinking of aristocracy and not democracy. And, and we're supposed to have a democracy. So that, that's something worth fighting for as far as I'm concerned. You've also said you would not live in the governor's mansion. Um, you would take a salary of a dollar less than the average wage. Is Correct. That, uh, um, but there again. But yeah, talk, talk to me about there, that. There again, I, I think governors should be servants and not masters. And to me, that puts a governor under the people, not above them. So I live in a 1,400-square-foot house. It's actually the biggest house I've ever lived in in my life. And I don't feel right personally moving into a 20,000-square-foot mansion after winning an election. And, and I also feel that if you're going to be true to that ideal that governors are servants and not masters, then taking the full salary of the governor doesn't feel right either. So I've, I've said that I'll be paid $1 less than the average Wisconsin worker makes. And that's, that's a personal commitment. I'm not asking anybody else to join me in taking that position. It's just a personal commitment of mine that if elected governor, that's the way I'm going to conduct myself. Talking about accomplishments over your career that you're particularly proud of um, and, and maybe some obstacles you faced along the way and how you overcame those. Well, you know, one of the proudest achievements, of course, was shining light on behavior that that ended up erupting into what was known as the caucus scandal, which ended up leading top legislative leaders to be convicted of criminal misconduct. And then after that, uh, I pushed hard for years for ethics reform that would create nonpartisan independent oversight of, of government ethics. And that legislation was passed and signed into law, and uh, the Government Accountability Board was established, and, and it took oversight out of the hands of the hand-picked appointees of, of top elected officials and, and created truly independent oversight. And so that was one of the achievements that I'm very proud of. But of course, uh, the current administration and, and its allies in the legislature uh, demolished that, that system, and, and that 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 was that was just an example of how you, you know you can work for years for something and in a matter of weeks it can be taken away so so uh you you can't ever rest you just have to be willing to get up and dust yourself off and go right back to work and and uh and follow your heart and and continue to work for the values that you think are important 
So what would be your priorities if you're elected and take the office of governor? To, to me, to me, we have to deal with inequality, both political inequality and economic and social inequality. And we've got an economy that benefits a few, uh, is making the rich vastly richer. Uh, and yet, so far in the 21st century, no state in America has seen its middle class shrink more than Wisconsin. And we've got levels of economic inequality now in our state not seen since the Great Depression. So we've got an economy that benefits a few at everyone else's expense, and we've got a government that works really well for a few and ignores the wishes of others. And the two are connected. The two feed off each other. The more politically unequal we become, the more economically unequal we become. And as, as economic inequality grows, that feeds further political inequality. The two feed off each other. So to me, the priority is both to pursue the ideal of democracy and revive democracy and create more political equality, and then also with a living wage for every worker, health care for all, debt-free education for young people, high-speed internet everywhere. Use our resources to empower regular working people from the bottom up. Everywhere I go, I talk about geyser economics, how economic prosperity doesn't trickle down. It gushes up, and we've got to change the conversation about how we pursue economic development. We can't just feed the rich and shower tax breaks and state subsidies on a few at the top. We've got to use our resources to empower working people from the ground up. And I, I think those are the priorities right there, is, is attacking rising inequality, both political and economic. Yeah, I got, I got to ask you about that. You talk about geyser economics. Uh, you, you coined a phrase that I hadn't heard before that I haven't heard you use in a while, but you, you talked about golden shower economics for, yeah, for trickle down. Yeah, I, well, <laughs> you, it, yeah. It, you know, because I, I, think, I think an awful lot of people out there who are struggling like crazy to keep their heads above water. You, you know, I saw a report recently where it said you need, if you're a minimum wage worker, you need three jobs to afford housing. Three jobs. And I know a lot of people out there who are, and, and they, they do, they do feel like what, what the people who are lording over them at the Capitol and, and are feeding the rich and, sh and showering tax breaks and state subsidies on, on a few with the, with the hope that some of that might filter down to the rest of us. That, that approach is failing us. And they do feel like they're getting a golden shower. <laughs> and, and so, you know, that, that's something that, you know, maybe took some people around Madison aback. Uh -huh. But I'm telling you, regular folks out there are feeling that way. They're, they're feeling as though they're being mistreated and mistreated badly. And they, and they can connect the dots. They understand that politically those at the top are being catered to. And that's producing an economy that then enriches a few at everyone else's expense. And it, and it creates enormous anger out there. One of the things I find interesting, Jesse, is that there's tremendous hunger for change all over our state, but the hunger intensifies the farther north you go. Interesting. Farther yeah. north you go, the people are more and more stirred up. And I think it's because they feel looked down upon, written off, forgotten, and they're, and they're mad. And uh, they have every right to be. So do you think, is, is there anything that Scott Walker has done well while he's, he's been in office? Well, you know, what he's particularly gifted at, he's a master political psychologist. He is, is extraordinarily skillful at pitting people against each other and getting people to see each other as enemies. You, you, you think about the, the rural-urban divide that everybody talks about all the time. I, I have the blessing of having been able to live in the city and out in the country. So I've, I've straddled those two worlds. And for all the talk of the rural-urban divide, rural and urban people have way more in common 
than we've been led to believe. The real divide in American politics is not between left and right, it's between top and bottom. And Scott Walker's been really good at being able to push buttons and, and get people to think of each other as enemies, and he's been able to divide and conquer. So he's, he's been remarkably uh, gifted at, at doing things that have, have been to his great political benefit, but it ultimately has weakened our state, and that's why we need a new governor. care about this state deeply and these issues are going to be with me for a long time. Us talking about a five-year plan is not helping me. It may be fine for you, but it's not helping me. Now, whether they're from the community, I don't care. Whether they're from space, I don't care. As long as they can provide the best visual experience for Madison. Keep hope alive. Keep hope alive. These are Cap Times Talks, smart conversations about big topics in Madison. Look for Cap Times Talks on iTunes or anywhere else you find podcasts. All right. Are you ready to move on to our lightning round? Go for it. Okay. Favorite Wisconsin beer? Spotted Cow. That's an easy one. That's an easy one. That is that is by far, in a way, the most popular answer well, to that question. But the, the more different brews that New Glarus, for example, comes out with, yeah. for me, just for my taste buds, they haven't come out with one that... I like better than Spotted Cow, so I keep going back to one yeah. of one of their originals. It's kind of the flagship, yeah. It is, yeah. But anything for a reason. Uh, yes, absolutely. Some people like some <laughs> yeah. people like something even more hoppy, right? Or you know, yeah. But that that hits my sweet spot taste wise. Good. Yeah. Do you are you loyal to a particular brand of blue jean? Lee. Okay. Why yeah. Lee? Only because they fit me best, and they just I I like them best. I and I you know I've tried Wrangler, I've tried Levi's, and. Mm-hmm. and and Lee is actually the one that works best for me. All right. So, yeah, clear favorite there. Okay, yeah. <laughs> what is the best advice that uh, your parents or, or a loved one gave you when you were growing up? Um, my mom told me one time very early in life, she said happiness is spelled O-T-H-E-R-S. Nice. That stuck with me. That's good, yeah. That, that's something she told me. Uh, what is your favorite lake in Wisconsin? Oh, gosh. I would say Devil's Lake. Yeah. Um, just, I mean, yeah. And, and it's not so much because of the water. It's because of the bluffs around it. I yeah, lo- it's I, beautiful. I love hiking up there. There's a whole bunch of lakes I, I, <laughs> we I'm, have I'm, some. Pretty, yeah. I'm pretty darn fond of, but I would probably yeah. say Devil's Lake. All right. What about the best concert that you've attended? Um, Joan Armatrading performed in Wisconsin many, many years ago. And it was the most fun I've ever had at a concert. Um, Al Jarreau at Summerfest one year, a long, long time ago. I really loved that particular concert. Um, yeah, that's prob- those are probably my two favorites. And, th- and those are not exactly your, your household names no, among no, performers. No, no, definitely not. I would say yeah. Joan Armatradings was the best I've ever seen. Wow. Do you know what your first concert was? I do not. Okay. I'm not sure. Yeah. I, I did I did go to one Grateful Dead concert pretty early, but that was definitely not my first. It was one that stood out, though. Yeah, that's yeah. A, that's a cultural that phenomenon. That would stand out, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> Who are your role models in politics? Um, Bill Proxmire, uh, Bobby Kennedy, uh, Fighting Bob LaFollette, for sure, Mahatma Gandhi, uh, looking more globally. Sure. Uh, I did a lot of reading of Gandhi's own writings about how, oh, yeah. he, how he brought about change in India and 
and led the Indian independence movement. Uh, he was a fascinating thinker. Where in Wisconsin do you feel most at home? I, you know what? I feel I feel at home everywhere in Wisconsin. I, I can't think of a place where I feel out of place. Um, I do, to this day, because of my upbringing, I do like to be out in the country. Mm-hmm. I, I, I love... I love rural Wisconsin. It has a hold on me. I, I won't deny that. Um, but, um, boy, you even put me at the Kohl Center for a UW basketball game. I feel really at home. <laughs> I feel really at home there. I, yeah. I, I love that, too. So, But uh, you can't – you can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. Yeah. And, and so that love of the rural landscape – and rural life is something that I can't quite shake. Yeah. So you, you grew up on a farm. Do you have any pets now? Yeah, we have a cat at home. I, I actually, that's a huge struggle for me to mm. have a pet indoors. So that is, uh, we have a democracy in our household. I have an 18-year-old son and a wife, and and they outvote me two to one <laughs> to have a pet in our house. But growing up on the farm, you just didn't have pets indoors. Sure, I suppose Dog, not. Dogs were not indoors. Cats were not indoors. We... And and so that's a struggle for me to have an indoor pet. It, it's not it's not something that I like. It's not something that I I, I feel is, that's interesting. Is, is natural. Yeah. And so that's just because of my upbringing. Mm-hmm. They feel very differently. Uh, I think my my son would would have liked to have had a dog too. And I and I said one indoor pet. That's it. <laughs> so we have a cat. Okay. If you uh, had a Wisconsin bucket list, so something really stereotypically Wisconsin that you've either never done or it's been a really long time, uh, what would what would that be? I feel like I've I think I've experienced just about everything you can experience in Wisconsin. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. going to Old County Stadium before there ever was a Miller Park, going to Lambeau Field before they spruced it up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I think I've been to just about every state park that we have in our state. I I really feel like I've explored Wisconsin as as much as you can, and I, I deeply love this state. Um, probably my bucket list has more to do with travel outside of Wisconsin. Sure, yeah. Than, than, you know, I've, I've traveled over 85,000 miles for this campaign so far. <laughs> so, and I felt like I had traveled this state extensively before that. My, my work often had me on the road to all parts of Wisconsin, and I've traveled a lot here. So I, I guess um, if I ever stop traveling this much in Wisconsin, you know, I there is still a bunch of countries I'd like to see. Yeah, great. Um, ready for your last one? Yeah. Favorite Wisconsin cheese? Um, probably Colby. It's it it hits the sweet spot in terms of my taste in cheese. But then also I grew up in Clark County, and Colby was just down the road from ah. where I grew up. And and Colby Cheese is named for the little town of Colby, yeah. which is right in my backyard. So I I have a bias. It's not only a, ta- a yeah. cheese that tastes right to me, but <laughs> it, but it also has that other connection. Perfect. Well, I will let you leave us with any closing words you you want listeners to hear. Oh, I, I you know Jesse, just thanks for having me, and and uh, it, this has been an absolutely unbelievable journey. The greatest thing about running for governor, as far as I'm concerned, is that this is one of those rare opportunities to travel from bubble to bubble to bubble. We all live in bubbles yeah, of one yeah. kind or another. And, and doing this, I get invited into other people's bubbles, and it gives you amazing insight into, into how people are living and what challenges they face. This whole experience has been a, uh, an amazing privilege.
Thank you for listening to Wedge Issues. We'll be back every week with new episodes, so make sure you're subscribed so you can stay up to date. If you have suggestions or feedback, you can leave us a rating, a review on iTunes, or you can tweet at me at jessieopie or email me at j-o-p-o-i-e-n at madison.com. Join us next week for a conversation with the Democratic candidate for governor who's been leading in the polls, Tony Evers. See you then. Oh, oh, oh.